Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Even with all this rain outside, there is sunshine in our souls today uh, as we're able to worship the Lord together. And I'm very thankful for the presence of visitors with us. Many of our own members are, are away for one reason or another, but their absence has been well made up by our visitors. We're very encouraged to have you here. I want to start off this afternoon by telling you something about myself that you may not know. I don't believe in mushrooms. I, I don't believe that they exist. The whole concept of an edible fungus is just too outlandish to me, too unnatural. I, I can't fathom how an edible fungus would exist. Quite frankly, I find it kind of repulsive. If they did exist, what purpose would they serve? They just ruin perfectly good pizza. They'd be slimy and smell funny. And I even hear that some of these supposed mushrooms can be poisonous. So I'm just a lot more comfortable and content and happy to have a worldview where mushrooms do not exist. There's only one problem with that. Mushrooms do exist. And my personal feelings about them make no difference to whether or not they truly exist. Why are we talking about mushrooms? Well, the reason I start with that uh, this afternoon is because one of the most prevalent arguments against the existence of God boils down to something very similar to what I just expressed. I don't understand how a loving God could allow such evil, pain, and suffering in the world. And if that's the kind of God that rules the universe, then I would just be a lot happier to believe that he doesn't exist. The only problem is my personal feelings about God. Whether or not I approve of his actions, whether or not I agree with the way that he runs the universe, has no bearing on the truth of whether or not he exists. And so what I want us to consider today, we are going to talk about the question, how could a loving God create evil? Where did evil come from? How could a loving God cause or allow so much suffering within the world? But I want us to recognize that this is primarily a question of God's character. Primarily, we are going to be defending God's character, not necessarily defending his existence. Because whether or not I agree with God has little bearing on whether or not he exists. Uh, we could talk a lot more about evidence for his existence, and at, at some point um, we can have other lessons, other studies about that. But that's really not what we're talking about here. And so if there is good evidence that God exists, then I, I really need to ask myself the question, is it reasonable that God created me with a higher sense of morality than he possesses himself? And if we can start there in our lesson today, uh, if we can start from that perspective, I, I think that answering some of these questions can certainly help build our faith in God's character, in his love for us, can help bring us a deeper peace and comfort that only trusting in a good and loving God can provide. And so that's what I want our goal to be today. If we want to defend his existence, we can talk about a whole lot of other things. But really what we're talking about today is defending his character. Is God the God of love, the God of mercy and compassion that the Bible makes him out to be? 
And this argument against a loving God is not a new argument by any means. Uh, all the way back in 300 BC, a Greek philosopher named Epicurus said, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And so, as we address this question, I want us to address Epicurus's argument here and try to answer uh, the question that he's posing. But we're not going to focus on the, the first and the last part because the question that we're asking is not, how could an omnipotent God? The question that we're asking is, how could a loving God? And so what we're going to focus on is this middle section. Is he able and not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is that a correct conclusion? Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? So the two questions that I want us to ask today are, are whence cometh evil? Where does evil and suffering come from if an all-good God created everything that we see? We're going to answer that question. And then secondly, how could a loving God allow such evil to come into existence and allow it to persist within his creation? And I think the Bible gives us very compelling answers to those questions. So first of all, where does evil and suffering come from? Well, the Bible would teach us from square one, Genesis chapter one, that God did not create anything evil. If you look in Genesis chapter one, time and time and time again, it is emphasized that God looked on his creation and saw that it was good. At different stages throughout that entire process, God proclaims his creation to be good until at the end in Genesis 1 verse 31, it says God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. God did not create anything less than perfect. God did not create evil and suffering in his initial creation. And even man in Genesis 1 verse 26 and 27 is said to be created in the image of God. And so man was not created with evil desires or sinful inclinations. Man was created to reflect God's image. And so we cannot blame God for, for bringing this evil into existence or not based on what the Bible would tell us. In James chapter 1, the passage that we just read, in verse 13, James warns us against this conclusion. He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God is not the source of temptation. He's not the source of any evil thing. He is not susceptible to the disease of sin. And so if we caught the disease of sin, we didn't catch it from him. That's basically what James is saying here. And in verse 16 and 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above and coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything that God has given us is thoroughly and completely good. And his character doesn't change. He never has a bad day where he you know, might have messed up a little bit and done something morally questionable. All that comes from God is perfect and pure. But if that's true, then whence cometh evil? That's not what we see in the world around us, is it? No, much of what we see in the world around us is evil, is sin, is suffering, is pain. If God created all things good, then where did that come from? 
Well, what we see in the scriptures is that evil is our corruption of God's perfect creation. And we're, we're going to flesh this out more as we go along, but stay with me as we take each step along the way. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29 tells us, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. God did not create us with a sinful nature or a morally weak constitution. God created us upright, and yet we took his good and perfect creation. And we, through our own devising, through our own design, brought about evil. Evil is man's workmanship, is what Ecclesiastes would tell us. And here in James chapter 1, if your Bible is still open there, look in verse 14 and 15. James says, don't blame God when you're tempted. And we might think, well, where does temptation come from? Well, the devil, that's where temptation comes from. That's not even what James says here. Notice in verse 14 and 15, he says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Yes, certainly, the, the devil is active in temptation. We see that from Genesis 3, and that's another topic that we could flesh out at another time. But here, the focus that James focuses on, he, he doesn't let us shift the blame to somebody else. He says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That we take the good desires that God has given us, and we allow them to seek out fulfillment in areas outside of God's design. Well, you say, well, those desires, didn't God give me those desires? Didn't God give me these, these sinful desires that I have? Well, what we see is that God gave us good and pure desires with legitimate fulfillment. And yet we have taken those desires and we have allowed them to entice us to pull us away from God's design, God's fulfillment, to seek fulfillment outside of God's will. Think about it this way. The desire for food, hunger, is that a good desire? Well, yes, it, it helps keep us alive. God created us to desire food because that's what nourishes us. However, can we misuse that desire? The Bible calls it gluttony. What about the sexual desire? Does that have a legitimate fulfillment? Well, God designed that to be good and perfect and wonderful within the marriage unit. He had a uh, purpose for that. And yet, when we seek fulfillment for that desire outside of God's design, we uh, fall into all sorts of sexual immorality. A desire for achievement. You know, to better ourselves is a good desire, but that can turn into selfish ambition and pride, can it? And from the very beginning, we see this is what happened. Look back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. In the garden, what was it that drew Eve away to disobey God's command and to eat of that forbidden fruit? Well, in Genesis 3 and verse 6, it says that Eve saw the tree, um, that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Which one of those is an evil desire within itself? Within itself, not one of those is an evil desire. In fact, God provided legitimate fulfillment for those desires. If you look back just one chapter in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, it said, Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. 
every tree of the garden was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. God provided an abundance of fulfillment for those desires that Eve was feeling. And what about a desire to make one wise? Did God not want man to be wise? You know, the serpent said that, that if we eat of that fruit, we would become like God. Is that a bad desire? To be like God? Well, on the surface level, no. We want to be God, like God. God wants us to be like God. God created us in his image. And yet God wanted us to learn about good and evil from his mouth, not from an experiential knowledge of evil. And so all these desires that we allow to, to drag us away from God's design, they have a legitimate fulfillment. Nothing that God created was evil, was wrong. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 says, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Lust and sin are forms of seeking fulfillment outside of God. Those lusts are not from God. They are seeking fulfillment from the creation rather than from the creator. Well, we might say, well, if God created all things good and perfect, how is this corruption even possible? Why have a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the first place? And I'm not sure that we can ultimately give the answer to that. God uh, alone knows why he created all those things, but I think we can give an answer. I think the Bible would provide us with an answer. And that is that God's perfect creation of law, and free will made corruption possible. There's nothing bad about law. Law is a good thing. It defines good and evil for us, right and wrong. And without law, virtues have no meaning. You know, without law, obedience or submission or faithfulness or righteousness would have no meaning whatsoever. In order for there to be a good in order for us to be able to choose good, there had to be some law. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, we see God giving that law in the beginning. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. God said, From any tree of the garden you can eat. I'm providing all these means of you fulfilling those desires that you have, but I'm also providing you with one law. One law of this one tree you shall not eat. And I'm giving you a warning because if you do eat, there are going to be dire consequences. Here, why did God put that one tree in the garden? Well, I think at least one reason is that it provided man's first lesson in morality. To simply do what God desires because there is no alternative has no moral value. We had to be able to choose good, to choose faith, to choose obedience, to choose love and mercy. Without our choice, those things have no significance. So God gave us the opportunity to choose with law, and he gave us the ability to choose with free will. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27 says we are created in God's image, and part of that is that we have an ability to choose. We can't reflect God's character without the ability to choose. Think about it this way. If I programmed my computer 
Every morning when I get up and I, and I open my computer for it to say, Grady, I love you, does that have any meaning? Well, no, I programmed it to do that. It has no choice in the matter. Even if it wanted to, it couldn't stop doing that. I programmed it. Now, on the other hand, if my wife gets up in the morning and comes to me at the breakfast table and gives me a kiss and tells me that she loves me, does that have meaning? Yes, because I didn't force her to do that. I didn't program her to do that. She chose to do that. God wants us to love. God wants us to choose obedience, to choose his character within our lives. And the only way to make that possible is to give us law and to give us free will. Moral goodness could not have been possible for man without law and free will. Yet these necessarily introduced the possibility of us choosing evil as well. There was nothing morally questionable. There was nothing that God created that was not good. And yet, we, through our own free will, took God's perfect creation and corrupted it. And with evil came suffering and death. And that's what God warned us would happen from the very beginning. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And all the things that accompany death, the suffering, the pain, the sorrow, came with evil. How exactly did that work? Well, I think there's a few things that we can say from the scriptures. One is that man's disobedience allowed Satan to usurp a certain amount of authority within the world. When you look at the New Testament, who does the Bible call the ruler of this world? Well, certainly there's a sense in which God is sovereign. God is the ruler of the universe. But the Bible talks about the devil as the ruler of this world. John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's not talking about God there. He's talking about Satan being defeated through his death. Again, in John 14, verse 30, John 16, verse 11, talks about Satan as the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 4, Paul talks about the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. He's not talking about Jehovah God there. He's talking about the God or ruler of this world, Satan, who has blinded the hearts of the unbelieving. Remember when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4 by the devil. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, it says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. How can Satan offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Is he just bluffing there that that he doesn't have anything to offer? Well, no, I think there's a sense in which the devil is the ruler of this world, had a certain amount of authority in this world. How did he get that authority? Did God give him that authority back in Genesis 1? Well, certainly not. In fact, in Genesis 1, do you know who God made the ruler of this world? Genesis 1, verse 26, says that God created man in his image and caused him to be a ruler over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that creeps on the earth and all the earth. God created us to be the ruler of this world. Well, how did Satan get to be the ruler of this world? We gave it to him. By being loyal to the bidding of Satan instead of the command of God, we handed that authority over to the devil. And so now Satan is the ruler of this world. And the Bible often attributes suffering to the devil. 
Satan is presented as the instigator of suffering on multiple occasions. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter, in talking to Cornelius' household, says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Where did their oppression come from? Where did these sicknesses come from? It says they were oppressed by the devil. Luke chapter 13, verse 16, when there's a woman who has bent over a double and not able to raise back up, Jesus says, And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound, for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Who bound her? Well, here attributes it to the ruler of this world, to Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 7, Paul, in reference to his thorn in the flesh, calls it a messenger of Satan. Job chapter 1, where does Job's suffering come from? Well, Satan instigated God to allow this suffering against Job as a test. And so... When we think about suffering, we need to remember this is not how God created the world. And we, by our own corruption of what God created, have let the floodgates in of suffering, of pain, of death, of sorrow. Ultimately, in one way or another, sin is the source of all suffering, all sorrow, and all pain. Even when Satan is not directly involved in our suffering, we can always trace it back in one way or another to sin. Sometimes we do suffer because of our own sins. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's sins. And sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a world that is broken and stained by sin. But don't blame God. When you suffer, when bad things happen in your life, God is not to blame for that. He's not the cause. He's not the originator of that. You know, when, when you're pulling weeds in your garden, don't blame God. God didn't create the weeds like that. That's the curse. When, when you are itching mosquito bite, don't blame God. God didn't create it like that. And when you have some incurable illness, and when your loved ones pass away, don't blame God. Because that's not how God created it. We... And our own free will, though created upright, have sought out our own devising. Don't blame God, blame sin. But with that, why does God allow evil and suffering to persist? If God, for, for thousands of years now, has seen all this going on, why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he remove all evil from his creation? Is that really what we want him to do? God's mercy allows evil to persist within his creation so that the wicked will have a chance to repent. If at every sight of evil, every time evil raised its ugly head, God wiped it out, none of us in this room would be here today. That's not what we want God to do. No, God in his mercy is allowing evil to remain so that he might salvage us from the corruption that we have caused within his creation. Look in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, talking about his second coming, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason that God hasn't come again, that God hasn't swept down and wiped out all evil yet is because he is waiting. He is waiting that others might be saved. The sun rose this morning. 
because God still wants somebody to be saved. That's why we're here. Because of God's mercy. And when you look at evil in the world around you, when you look at suffering in the world around you, don't let it be a testament to God's malevolence. Let it be a testament to God's mercy. That he allows that to persist so that you, so that I, can be saved. And we can also see throughout the scriptures that God often allows suffering to achieve a greater good. Suffering, first of all, can urge us to reach for something beyond this life. C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God shouts to us in our pain. What, what is the message that he's shouting to us through that? He's shouting, you need me. And so when we go through times of suffering, many times it reminds us that we don't have it under control, that we can't take care of everything, that we need something, some higher power, something to help us. And God uses that to help us reach out for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you'd like to turn over there, Paul talks about this lesson in his own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8, he talks to the brethren here about the affliction that he and those with him went through. In verse 8 he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. When they were burdened beyond their strength, what did that remind them? That they needed a higher power. They needed a higher strength. When they were afflicted so severely that it caused them even to despair of life, what did that point them toward? Some hope beyond this life. And when we get discouraged and down and in despair because of the futility of this fleeting world that we live in, what does that point us to? Towards a higher place. Towards something incorruptible and eternal that only God can offer us. Don't let suffering turn us against God. Let it point us towards God. To realize that He alone has the strength he alone can provide us the purpose and the hope to get beyond the sorrow and the suffering of this fleeting world. And also, sometimes God allows suffering because it's one of the best opportunities for us to grow and to bring glory to him. James chapter 1, if you'd like to turn back there, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. No pain, no gain is what we sometimes say. And God uses our trials to help us develop the type of character that he wants us to have. He says we can consider it all joy. Well, what are you talking about? How can we be joyous? How can we rejoice in trial? When our focus is not on our physical comfort, but on the refinement of our eternal souls, we can find great satisfaction. And knowing that these challenges, that these trials, that this sorrow is drawing me closer to God, 
that is helping me develop the type of character that he wants me to have. Now, sometimes we don't let endurance have its perfect work. We don't always react that way. Trials can either make us better or they can make us bitter. But if we let them have their perfect work, there can be much to thank God for, much to glorify him for in our trials. Let me just say that I am abundantly thankful that 13 years ago, my wife, at the age of 15, had a massive aneurysm and stroke. She still has to be on medication for that today. There's some physical limitations that she faces from that. But her and I both glorify God for that. Because she would not be the person she is today without that. I think each of us can see that in our lives and the lives of those around us. That God took something difficult. That God took something that was a great burden upon our hearts. And God used it to help mold us, to help develop the type of character that he desires. Look at all the examples of the great Bible characters that we look at. Throughout the scriptures, we we see men like Joseph, like David, like Daniel, or Job, or Paul. What what are the stories that we remember about them? Do do we remember the days that they were just sitting around their house enjoying everything that, that God richly blessed them? What we primarily remember about them is their trials, is their challenges. It was their greatest opportunity to bring glory to God. When they had joy, when they were faithful, though being thrown in prison, thrown into the lion's den, thrown into the fiery furnace, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, facing fearsome foes, that's what brought glory to God. And when we can rejoice, when we can have a peace that transcends our physical circumstances, it's our greatest opportunity to shine God's light just like they did. But thirdly, God doesn't always have to tell us why. Maybe I look at some situation and I say, well, how is God using this? How is God helping me to to grow through this? How is God using this for his glory? I may not have the answer. And I don't have to have the answer. If I had all the answers, guess what? I would be God. But I'm not. I would sooner try to filter the the waters of Niagara Falls through a drinking straw than try to filter Almighty God through my mind. I don't have to have all the answers. Think about it this way. You know, a newborn child may feel that it's very cruel for a doctor to operate on it. You know, to put an IV in it or inject it with some needed medicine. But why would the doctor do that? Because the doctor knows that the child, to be healthy and to be strong, needs something that maybe initially is going to be quite painful. I think sometimes we think that we are in a better position to judge whether or not something is morally acceptable than God himself. Think about Job. What was the answer that Job was given? when all of his sufferings were getting ready to come to a close, did God come in and say, Job, by the way, I had this conversation with Satan back in chapter 1, and this is what Satan said, and this is what I said, and this is why I allowed you this opportunity to show your faithfulness. That's not what God says. God comes in and he says, Job, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You need to trust 
And at the end, Job acknowledges that. He says, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Behold, I have spoken that which I did not know. We need to trust in God. Think about John chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. Here we read about a man who is born blind from his mother's womb. The disciples ask Jesus, they say, why is this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin or because of the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus goes on to heal this man of his blindness so that God might be magnified. Do you think for... The, the years that this man was unable to see, he knew what was going He knew one day this man named Jesus, this Messiah, is going to come and he's going to heal me and that's why I was blind from my mother's womb. No, he didn't know the answer. And yet God did. God knew that we're still going to have him in our Bibles today. That what Jesus did in his life is, is a testament to God's glory for generations to come. What about Joseph? In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers about what they had done to him, selling him to slavery, allowing him to be in prison. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph now, second in command in Egypt, making it possible for them to overcome this famine? Do you think all the years that Joseph was imprisoned, that he was forgotten about, that he knew what God was doing? Well, no. Joseph didn't know how God was going to work. But in the end, God had a wonderful purpose, even for those years of suffering that he went through. Our disobedience may keep us from ever experiencing the result that God had in mind with our suffering. If we don't let those trials make us better, but allow them to make us bitter, maybe it will never be realized what God had in mind. But if we are willing to submit to him, one day, whether in this life or after this life is over, we'll be able to look back at that. We'll be able to see how God had a purpose. I think we can trust from what we read in the scriptures that God does not needlessly allow his children to suffer. God is a loving father. I may not know why. I may not know the purpose. But I can know that God is not turning a blind eye to my suffering. That he knows exactly what I'm going through. And if he, even with my prayers for removing this trial, allows it to persist, he has a purpose. But what I want us to conclude with is looking at the cross. Ultimately, the cross is God's answer to the problem of evil and suffering. Because the real question is not, how could a loving God allow me to suffer? The real question is, how could a loving God send his own son down to earth to suffer and bleed and die on a cross? And if we can answer that question, I think we can come to terms with the evil and suffering in our own lives. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, tells us, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him from whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Why did Jesus suffer upon the cross? Jesus experienced the consequences of evil. He paid the price of our sins. He suffered our death upon the cross so that we could be delivered freed from corruption, so that we could be cleansed from evil, so that we can have a hope of eternity where there is no suffering, no pain, and no sorrow. God had a purpose. And in the darkest hour that the world had ever seen, God accomplished the greatest thing that has ever been accomplished. Our reconciliation, our redemption, our salvation was accomplished through Jesus' suffering and death upon the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, Paul says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If this life is all that there is, then yes, suffering is unforgivable. Yes, suffering has no greater purpose. But if there is an eternity, if there is a God who wants to save us for that eternity, then it will change our perspective. Greatly. In verse 53 of that same chapter, Paul says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This life isn't all that there is. These sufferings, these sorrows that seem so heavy, that seem to weigh us down so much, that we feel that we can't go on. In eternity, we're going to look back on this and not blink an eye at what we had to go through here, that we might spend an eternity in the presence of Almighty God, who loves us, who gave His Son to die for us, that we might spend an eternity in the presence of the source of all things good. I know in this lesson we haven't answered every question. There are many more things that we could discuss. But I hope what we have established, I hope what we have built within your minds is that there is a God who deeply loves you. So much that he has patiently allowed his creation to crumble into ruin that he might save you, that he might salvage you out of the rubble. There is a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to suffer, to bleed, and to die so that you could have a hope beyond the grave, a hope of eternity with God and fellowship with Him, the source of all things good. How will you respond to Him today? When you look at the suffering and the sorrow of this world, will you allow it to tear you down, to turn you against God, to make you bitter? Or will you turn to God in that suffering for the hope and the peace and the comfort that only He can provide? If you want to turn to God today, you need to surrender your life to him, to let him take control. We want to help you in that. We want to help you make that commitment in your life.
there's anything that we can do to help you to be in a right relationship with the Lord, we ask that you'll let us know at this time as we sing.